You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to ACCA. My name is Max Delaney. I'm Artistic Director, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the exhibition Ioani Scarce Missile Park. Um, thank you very much for joining us, and um, welcome, Ioani. Thank you. Um, I'd firstly also like to extend apologies from Lisa Waup, who was going to join us for this conversation, but has got the, the, the cold that's going around, so she's unable to join us this afternoon. Um, I would also like to acknowledge the Bunwurrung and the Wurundjeri as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet and extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I'd equally like to acknowledge um, Ioani's people, the Gugatha and Nukanu, and her ancestors, um, whose country we'll be reflecting upon this afternoon. Um, and indeed, we, we are able to meet um, Ioani's ancestors in the first gallery of the exhibition, um, her great-great-grandmother, Dinah, and also her grandfather, Barwell. Um, so, Ioani was born in 1973 in Woomera, which is very much at the centre of the work that we're discussing today called Missile Park. And I think you might see some um, pictures on the screen here from a recent road trip, which gives a bit of context to um, the, the, the project that we're, we're discussing today. Um, so we're talking, I guess, really very much about family history, about uh, First Nations histories in Australia, colonial histories, Cold War and global histories. And this work also very much locates itself in the kind of recent history of the Cold War and the um, impact of nuclear colonisation and its ongoing legacies today. So I'd like to, um, again, welcome Ioani Scarce. And perhaps, Ioani, to start off with, we could, um, could I ask you just about Missile Park itself? It's really the title, but it's also, it's a place um, in Woomera, um, almost about 100 metres from where you were born, but it also speaks of a, of a broader history. Yeah, so um, uh, for those people who haven't visited Woomera, it's, it's five hours drive north of Adelaide in South Australia, and um, it uh, was, uh, or is still an active, uh, uh, I guess, testing range. The Woomera prohibited area is still very much active. And so, um, uh, the missile park in Woomera is, uh, I call a trophy park. It's an outdoor museum that holds, or holds, is it holds? Yeah, um, many, uh, uh, I guess, test rockets, planes, bombs, space junk. Um, and it's, I guess it's not just there either. It's sort of like there's some junk junkyard in Woomera too, hey, with, um, that you might see, if, uh, you will see a photo of uh, the Kistler rocket, uh, which is, we'll have a photo of it in the, um, on the screen, on the too, screen yeah. too, I think. Yeah, and it will be in the catalogue. Um, but it, it is, yeah, for me, it's, uh, it's probably the most cared for uh, museum uh, in remote South Australia. I think um, when we were there, it was um, uh, freshly painted and, um, yeah, and there's a museum that, uh, that sits in the missile park as well. So it's, it draws a lot of tourists, but it does um, reflect on uh, Woomera's history, I guess, of, um, of uh, plane and aerospace and rocket testing, yeah. And I suppose just for a bit of context as well, um, I mean, Woomera was itself established in 1947 um, and it was therefore established really at the outset of the Cold War. Um, 
and it was from Woomera that um, the British um, atomic tests were conducted from 1953, um, firstly at Emu Field, and then from 57 to 63 at Maralinga. Um, and there's, there's a cemetery at Woomera as well, Ioanni, which you've, you've visited unfrequently. Yeah, so it's, it's um, I call it the children's cemetery. So it's, it's uh, just probably a 20-minute walk uh, north of Woomera. And um, it, it uh, housed well, a lot of children, yeah, a lot of children, primarily children were buried there. So it's like the, the history of, um, I guess, the nuclear tests uh, involved uh, the deaths of many non-Aboriginal children, but also Aboriginal children that are still unaccounted for. But um, the children that are buried at the Woomera Cemetery uh, were often stillborns, uh, children who were deformed, um, miscarried children as well, babies, unfortunately. And um, I just found out recently, and actually I was going to tell you, Max, um, that a friend of mine has done a lot of research into Strontium-90, which is the um, Project Sunshine, which is the, the um, testing of um, Strontium-90 in the bones of children. So probably a lot of those cemeteries, uh, those graves are empty. But also um, there's probably um, uh, children all over the place that we, we probably encountered without knowing, yeah. I mean, it, there really is a disproportionate number of children at this, in this cemetery, almost probably, a, I would say, a quarter of the graves were of children who were either stillborn or were living for 18 hours, 26 hours, 36 hours on the, the gravestone, so right through the 1950s. Um, and just as a personal side and a, a bit of personal history and anecdotal history is that not far from the Woomer Cemetery is another um, private cemetery. It's a cemetery at the Philip Ponds um, homestead it's a small cemetery just with six, um, six or five or six graves. Um, but one of those graves is quite significant to you. Yeah, it has my name. So that's where my mum found my name. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's the first time I've actually shared it, like, quite publicly. So um, there you go. But, yeah, so it's... My mum told me a story when she, my... Because my father worked as a plant operator. At, that's what they called back then, but he, he drove bitumen trucks. So they were building roads, I guess, out to the, the um, Andamuka and Roxby Downs, the near the uranium mine, Olympic Dam uranium mine. And so mum used to walk quite a lot because she was um, probably one of, probably only very few Aboriginal people living in the area at the time. So she found my name and said if she ever had a daughter, she would call her Yuani. So there you go. Yuani, yeah. um, you mentioned before the Woomera prohibited area or the exclusion zone and um, it's, um, I think people might not quite realise the, the extent of the prohibited zone and it really extends from um, basically from Woomera across to Maralinga up to Emu Field and almost back to, um, almost to, um, um, what's it called? Opal Mining Town. Um, Andamuka. Yeah, uh, yep. and Andamuka. Okay, and yep. um, and uh, it is, I believe it's actually the size of, um, apparently it's the size of England or the US state of Florida. So the exclusion zone is about almost one-sixth of the land mass of South Australia. And Gugath, the country, is your country. And most of that country is actually still um, within the prohibited zone. Yeah, definitely. I think there's only a small part that isn't, yeah, that comes under that that um, 
yeah, that restrictive zone. So I think, um, yeah, that for me that's pretty tough because it's, it, you can't, I can't access that area without permission from the Department of Defence. So it's unless, I don't know, it's weird, it's odd. And it, yeah, gives me the shits to be honest. But, yeah. um, in the exhibition in the first gallery is a work called The Day We Went Away. It's from 2004. It's actually a work that you only made at art school. Uh, it's a suitcase which um, contains a number of glass bush bananas, bush fruits. And so it's actually got a very similar structure to this work here, but being these, a sort of vessel, a ready-made vessel that um, contains uh, glass objects and bush foods. Um, but that, the suitcase for me speaks about a history of displacement and Yuani's work um, you know, repeatedly addresses the questions of displacement of Aboriginal people sent to the mission, sent, uh, taken from their families and sent to foster homes, um, sent to domestic servitude. And more recently, in the 50s, um, your people were displaced from their country because of the nuclear tests. Um, and so, uh, um, but not all people were actually um, relocated. Yeah. For those who are not aware of the nuclear tests or the history of the nuclear tests in South Australia, that um, uh, during, uh, I guess, that, that time period or just before, that, you know, like Emufield Village had been built, but also Maralinga was in the process of being built as well. And um, there's a, a man called, um, I don't, can't really remember his first name, don't really care, but it's sort of McDougall was... Uh, employed by the Australian government to round up as many Aboriginal people as possible. He, he did that for Woomera as well um, when the rocket range was, um, I guess, starting to test as well. But, um, but yeah, he was given 10 days to collect and remove as many Aboriginal people as possible. And a lot of those people he didn't catch. So it was sort of like there were still people living in the area and um, could have been sitting under a tree and he wouldn't even know, but so there's a lot of people that are unaccounted for. Mm. And which these works very much address. Um, it's, before we get into those, these works in particular, um, your research into nuclear colonisation and history of, of atomic tests, et cetera, has taken you to Fukushima, to Nagasaki, to Hiroshima, to Chernobyl, and you, your work has always had a memorial function um, and You've also researched Holocaust memorials and you've also been especially interested in sort of brutalist, anti-fascist memorials of Eastern Europe. So I'm wondering if you could reflect on the role of the memorial in your work and memorial architecture. I think um, for me, the, yeah, um, the importance of memorials, um, yeah, for me, I think, uh, because sites, sites of significance, you know, like uh, where people have passed away or... Um, uh, people are buried and things like that. It's sort of, particularly with the uh, frontier wars here in Australia, it's, um, we, for me personally, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not, hap you know, like remembering those um, people who died to fight for country or who were fighting for country, it's not being remembered as much as it should should be so it's um, and um, you know it's it's amazing because community are doing it themselves and local communities you know like Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal as well but it's sort of like we're still waiting for the government and also state governments to do that too so for me it's um, in the importance of creating uh, artworks that reflect that as well and um, so a lot of that research had yeah like what you say has taken me to 
different parts of the world uh, to look at how other countries are doing that. And they've been doing it a lo longer than Australia has. So, um, so yeah, Miss Old Park is part of that and the other works in the other gallery are part of that too. So. I mean, Blood on the Wattle is one such work which really seeks to memorialise the history of massacres in Australia and one particular massacre in Elliston in um, South Australia in 1849 and it sort of forms a kind of surrogate grave in a way. Um, this work really seeks to memorialise a more recent history, those of the atomic tests. So I think um, when um, I was approached to create a new commission for, for this exhibition, um, we always knew it was going to be in this space, so that, which I nicknamed the Turbine Hall. But um, so it's, for me, it was a massive hangar itself, really. So, and uh, I think uh, there's works in this show that reflect on family and, and other histories of um, the treatment of Aboriginal people. But for me, particularly, it was, it, I wanted to create a work that was going again back to South Australia and back to my birthplace of Woomera. So, um, and the involvement of um, the Australian military and British military um, in uh, the cover-up of Aboriginal deaths during the nuclear test as well. So I was looking a lot at the architecture within um, South Australia's, um, I guess, landscape, and so Maralinga informed it a lot. I've seen pictures of Emu Field even though I haven't been there. Hopefully one day I, I will get to visit, but um, and uh, I thought, yeah, I just couldn't stop thinking about um, the buildings, the really interesting buildings actually at Woomera, and so. Yeah. And perhaps could you tell us a bit more about the architecture of Maralinga because it was a it was a, a town that was just set up as a kind mm. of temporary town in the mid 1950s. Mm. Um, tell us about the architecture there. Yeah, so the the majority of them are all aluminium sheeting like this. It's sort of the Maralinga Hospital uh, is uh, probably one of the longest standing buildings in, in the village. So they, um, and it's for me, it's one of the, my favourite buildings there, but it was built in 10 days and it was designed to be built in 10 days, but it was also designed to last for 30 years because they did intend to live there for that long and test for that long. But um, so, and then um, it was designed to sort of like pack down and move out within 10 days too. So there's, there's some um, buildings that are left behind, but it's quite scattered, but there's foundations of the old buildings that are there. So the old roads, old streets are there. The hospital, the um, probably the mess hall is still there. It's an old green building, but um, a lot of them are just, yeah, pressed metal like this, yeah. There's a certain brutalism to these works, and you've been inspired by brutalist architecture of Eastern Europe, and also these are also covered in bitumen. So, sort of, is that a material of significance? For me, I think that yeah. Um, when I was working with Corey Thomas, who fabricated the sheds, we talked a lot about the stories of Maralinga and the the other nuclear tests at Emu Field and, this, and how there was tar-like substances that would fall on buildings and people's skins at the time and it was oily and black. So we uh, thought about using bitumen uh, paint and it, it was, um, felt like it was perfect because it, it's gritty, it smells, it's sticky and, um, and it has this aged effect, I think, but it does actually look like the buildings are sick as well, so, yeah. Um, 
on these images, we, we get to, there's a few images I think you'll see of um, this extraordinary um, mosaic mural. So you, you're, you, you were very keen to show us the, um, the theatre at Woomera, which is a sort of a modernist building from the 1960s probably. It's, um, I, I would refer to it as utilitarian modernism. Um, it's sort of d defence um, uh, sort of architecture. But um, there's an extraordinary um, mosaic mural behind the candy bar. Yeah, so I think you're really good at describing that. <laughs> it, it, it's a mural, it's an extraordinary mural, it's like a 1950s, 60s pop mural, um, and there are three figures you can see. One is a rocket, um, it's almost like a Jetsons sort of um, cartoon-like image, image. One is the image of Universal Man with arms in the air uh, under a constellation of stars, and the third image is actually um, a bomb with a wick, and um, you'll see it, I think, scrolling on the screen. Um, and um, it's an extraordinary image which really sort of seeks to celebrate man and technology and the bomb in the height of the Cold War period. Um, and it bears an uncanny resemblance to the forms of bush plums that have existed in your work over a period of time. Yeah. It's interesting, like, when... Because um, Max and Lisa uh, and Liz travelled with me to to Woomera and um, Sejuna, where my extended family are. So I'd been, um, uh, been wanting to get inside that theatre um, for a long time, actually. And Max has this ability of getting into buildings. For <laughs> and so these, the cleaners turned up and Max ended up getting, yeah, talking to them and we all walked in. And so it was the first time I'd actually seen that mural, but it also reminded me of the murals that I saw in um, old Soviet architecture. And so exactly the same. Like it's sort of like these mosaics are like the same shape, the same color, but also this celebration of things that probably, yeah, shouldn't be celebrated really. But um, but yeah, so it's sort of, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that that bomb with that wick was there and then it was like the, the glass works inside the sheds had already been made really. So, and for me the, the bush plums inside these sheds are like time bombs. I feel like they're time bombs. They're ready to go off, yeah. You've, you've spoken, to them as, uh, spoken of them as both bush plums and also truth bombs. Um, and, but they also remember, uh, I guess, recall um, the form of an earlier work of yours, the Strontium 90 work, and, um, and your, your reference to fallout babies as well. Mm, mm. Yeah, so I think for me these are, um, they do, they represent the dead, and the, you are invited to enter the first shed that which is behind us, and shut the door behind you, and and um, wait for your eyes to adjust, and then be confronted with these these objects that are looking straight back at you. So, so they, you know, they are the for me the the um, the truth that's about to you know hopefully be uncovered more, and are waiting patiently, I think, inside these sheds. Yuani so. um, is a, a glassmaker and a glassblower and um, has been working with glass since um, she was at art school in 2004. Um, and um, recently Yuani um, was in conversation with Daniel Browning who um, has referred to Yuani's um, work as almost single-handedly inventing a, a genre of practice for First Nations artists in Australia working with glass. Um, but I'd like, if, if we could, just to reflect on the significance of glass in your work. Um, but firstly, how did you come to be working with glass? Uh, yeah, I think that glass 
Yeah, glass for me, I think, um, found me. It was the other way around, I think. Like, it was... Um, I was... I was working for University of Adelaide at the time and I was keen to go to art school, but also um, I'd kept finding these objects in op shops in Adelaide of handmade glass and I was really curious about how they were made because I knew that they were handmade and um, uh, for some reason, I've, yeah, and I discovered that the art gallery, um, South Australian School of Art offered glass blowing as a subject, so... Yeah, so I promptly resigned, I think, six months before I left my job to go to art school. Didn't even know if I was going to get in, but anyway. But um, it sort of, yeah, it took hold, really. I, yeah, so it was something I felt very drawn to. Mm. And, of course, glass is made from silica, um, which, you know, is sort of turns into glass with infernal heat. Um, so in the first instance, it's really made from sand and it represents country, or it is of country, but glass also has an additional significance in relationship to the landscapes of, of Maralinga and the atomic tests. Yeah, so, um, and I've just only sort of recently discovered that um, Emu Field has some glass out there too, actually only just in the last couple of weeks. But um, yeah, so there's a bomb site out at Maralinga where it's called Breakaway and it, the bomb was set off close to the grounds and it was so hot it turned the ground to glass. But when I was in Birmingham last year, I just, uh, an academic at the University of Birmingham told me that um, it wasn't actually uh, created close to the ground. It was the surface of the, the, um, the land was sort of raised through the, I guess, the bomb going upwards. And so... It, yeah, the blast impact. Yeah. It took the sand up into the sky and it became molten. But, the heat. Yeah, and then liquefied and then hit the ground, so it was sort of like sheets of glass, so yeah, yeah. So glass has, a, has obviously a very specific significance in your work, but it also, glass, I think, operates in your work as a form of a lens as well to shine light on, on particular histories. Um, and so I think these works for me are, are extraordinary because they're very dark works and the, the, the sheds are of sort of traumatic architecture, but the um, glass bush plums inside also sort of shine light on um, equally traumatic sort of histories, but they also, in the, in the way, they also become reflective spaces of memorial. I think, yeah, I like to, I think, um, I more recently create spaces where people can, yeah, reflect quietly, particularly with Blood on the Water when, that, when um, the cousin work was created I wanted it to sit closely to the ground and then um, people can interact with, it, interact with it more intimately, I think, too. So when I was creating Missile Park, it was, I was thinking about how people could react or how, and also how to interact with it. So, but um, not to scare people, but because it is quite a dark work and it's, a dark his, it's about a dark history in Australia, so it's something where... Um, you know, anyone, everyone's going to react to it differently, but for me it's sort of a quiet space um, and you can um, enter and for me stay as long as you want or as long as you can and then leave when you're ready. But, um, but also I wanted the pieces inside those sheds to have the respect that is deserved, that they are deserved of, yeah. 
and the, 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 you, your work um, engages with bush foods repeatedly, and so bush bananas, bush plums, um, yams in particular, and often they are anthropomorphic or they stand in for others. And so I'm wondering if you could just reflect upon your interest in bush food. And um, for me, I think when I was at, when I was studying glass blowing, it was um, we, you know, uh, would taught how to make functional objects, so it was like, which is part of the learning process anyway, because it is a skill-based um, medium. So it, for me, I was thinking about um, how I could represent myself or my culture. And then uh, growing up in Alice Springs as well, it's sort of we were engaged a lot with local community and mum worked with um, a lot of the Walpri aunties, so we, we knew a lot about bush food. And from my own country as well, so it was. Um, but it was very much embedded in who I who I am. So, for me to start creating bush food was um, perfect to represent us as people, and also what we do as you know Aboriginal people. What, you know what we eat as Aboriginal people. But for, um, I think at that time I had no idea really that they were going to take on their own life, really, yeah, and represent something completely different to my first initial um, yeah, idea of what they would be, so, yeah. And it was very nice to, when we went to Sejuna um, and we went to visit Kunuba, which was a Lutheran mission now, Aboriginal community, and, um, but in the Arts Centre in Sejuna there's also the um, Far Western Languages Centre and um, on display is a book in, in the library there about bush food and that was written by your auntie, apparently. Yeah, Aunty Sue Coleman Hasseldines, um, or Hasseldine Coleman, sorry, um, and um, my uh, nana, Nana Marcina Coleman, who's passed away. So they, they have a lot of the, they call it bush supermarket. So it's like all the bush, yeah, bush plums and uh, other medicinal um, uh, food as well, which I still, you know, I have. I get as much as I can when I'm back in Sejuna. So. It's a really good archive. Those books are sold out too, so I'm lucky I've got two. But, um, but it's something that, yeah, I guess people need to know more about it as well and that they're there. Like we were at the Cactus Beach and there's bush plums sitting right on the side of the um, car park. Yeah. I think I put, I, I might have put a, a slide up of some bush plums, I think. Um, we had some good bush food that day. We had oysters in the morning from Smoky Bay and then we had bush plums in the afternoon from um, Cactus Beach. So it was, um, it's, it's a very, um, an extraordinarily arid country. Um, and of course, mineral resources are plentiful in South Australia and it probably provides, apart from pastoral country, the main industry is extraction economies like mining. So that, you know, iron ore, uranium, copper, salt, gypsum, and many other materials. And it's a very, um, arid landscape, but it's actually also very abundant and plentiful if you know the country, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I think um, we saw quite a lot of salt lakes on our travels as well, so it's, um, yeah, I think a lot, there's a large wheat belt that we saw, hey, so it was, um, so it was nice to be along the coast and be able to eat as much seafood as we could and have some have some bush food along the way too. And we certainly, by pure happenstance, but on the last weekend we landed upon some serious um, um, fishing going on at um, Port Victoria and Port yeah. Pierce, which was an extraordinary day. Yeah, so we ended up down um, where my grandmother is buried, um, Fanny, who's in the room 
next to us, so um, and was in a previous work called Remember Royalty that was exhibited here. So we, for some reason, ended up in the long weekend of like Invasion Day, I think, Invasion Day long weekend, and there's a lot of my family that were in the area, like it was great, like Blackfellas just took over the pub, and so it was, and there's this Butterfish Festival that's happening where there's a big fishing festival, and, and um, and butterfish is my one of my most favourite seafood as well. And um, but yeah, like the size of these damn fish, like was huge. And it's they just got it hooked over the side of their these 15 year old kids, you know. And it's um, and but Max noticed as well that they were sharing the fishes, you know, as they were walking around the the area. And it's um, for me, it was yeah such a, an amazing way to finish up the trip. Yeah. Um, I wanted also to make sure we had some time for questions from the audience, which I'm sure that um, there, there might be. So um, Bianca is here with a um, with a, a microphone. So if if people do have any questions, we'd, be, we'd welcome them. Um, thank you both. Um, I just have a simple question. Um, these amazing images and the story that we heard about your trip. Uh, is there? Did you? think about way of documenting it or is it a present within a book and whether you have the plan, the way how to share your experience uh, further with us be beyond the lecture? Thank you. Yeah, the, the, with, there's a photo essay in the catalogue which is available next week. So um, it's, a, it's a snippet of our, yeah, of our trip. Yeah, so I think there's one... It's chronological, so there's Sejuna... Uh, Woomera, and then um, parts of uh, Point Pierce and Port Victoria as well. And there's cactus. There's a few images of Cactus Beach and Coonabar community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the road trip um, was documented, and Iwani returns repeatedly to country. And um, so the, there's a picture essay in the essay in the, the catalogue. We've also commissioned new texts by Daniel Browning um, and by um, Hannah Presley and a poem by Natalie Harkin, um, as well as a, an existing text on um, Ioani's recent memorial work, the NGV um, Architecture Commission um, from 2019. Um, so th there is a publication coming out this week. Um, and there's also, we're about to launch a couple of interview, video interviews as well, which includes some um, of that footage and some um, of the road trip as well. But I guess it's probably more part of your longer term research practice of, of documentation, but it does, I mean, the photographic image does indeed appear in your work, I'm thinking of Strontium 90, um, but also archival images as well, and of which Dinah and Barwell will be two good examples. Yeah, so I think it just, it, um, when I, I do field work quite a lot when I can, or when there's no, when we're not dealing with a pandemic, so it's, um, so I'm often in South Australia and I've got thousands of photos. And um, and not just from of Australia, but internationally as well. So it's it's uh, I don't see myself as a photographer, but um, I do tend to use f yeah photography a lot in my work. And um, and with the photographs next door, they're they're very much what you see as natural. Like it's not pro they're not processed or anything like that. It's very important part of it. I mean, in a way, I think what, you're, what you are doing with photographs is almost retrieving them from the colonial archive or retrieving them or reclaiming them from ethnographic contexts and reintroducing them into more familial contexts or bringing them from the past 
where they were consigned into sort of archives or collections and bringing them back into the present as you often speak about bringing your ancestors with you but also uh, honouring your ancestors as well. Yeah, I think um, for me it's uh, important part of the process of, you know, re rediscovering family history or, you know, finding photographs that are hidden away in institutions that you still have to pay money for to get a copy of, um, which I think is really ridiculous. So I th we, for me personally, I rely on family, cousins that are doing other family history research, so we share the images a lot. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's about bringing, for me it's really important to talk about my family uh, because they, they are a large part of where I come from and particularly my grandparents as well. So it's something that, you know, I like to celebrate them for, for who they were and who they are really, because they're still, like we say, they're still very much around me, I feel, um, and I, I really like the fact that I can take them overseas. And, um, you know, it was really, for me, it was a huge privilege to, for them to uh, end up, uh, remember royalty that worked, particularly because they were, all of my uh, very significant ancestors ended up in Paris, but, well, you know, without me, but anyway, but it's good. <laughs> sorry, sorry um, I'll wait for the microphone, and thank you. Sorry, thank you. Wonderful talk. Thank you very much. Um, I couldn't help thinking while you were talking about that idea of the, the bush supermarket and the, the effects that Maralinga and the, um, you know, the, the testing of atomic bombs would have had on the ecology and on, you know, the bush plums and the bush bananas and so on. So I guess any thoughts on or any stories that ancestors may have passed on to you about how things had been and um, the experiences that you have now with, you know, um, obviously, you know, food chain that's been affected by, I mean, you know, bomb blasts that can turn sand into glass, you know. What would it have done to a bush plum, I suppose? So that was just what I was thinking about as you were talking amongst many things. Yeah, well, it's it sort of these nuclear tests poison water yeah. and, um, and there's, yeah, there's a, at the, I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but with the breakaway bomb site, it's the, the landscape, you can tell that you can see the circumference of the blast because the trees and the bushes won't, won't grow any f higher than 15 centimetres off the ground and then they die off, but then they regenerate. But it's, I think um, it's, it's probably a similar stories to when Chernobyl um, uh, happened. There people in Europe were told not to eat the berries and drink the milk. And that's what they say about strontium-90 as well, like it was, um, it was through, they were testing the bone marrow because it would have been um, uh, radioactive material like milk, water, food would have been ingested by both parents and by the children. So it's, yeah. Incredibly, it's, yeah. incredibly pervasive and um, long lasting and generation after generation. It just makes you pause to think, so. Yeah, one of, one of Ioanni's works is actually called Thunder Raining Poison, which is um, a work in the National Gallery of Australia collection. I think there's a question in the middle here. I need to be turned on. Um, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, I was just wondering, um, with the Royal Commission in the 
80s, um, that it uh, exposed, I guess, for a lot of white Australians, this kind of level of colonial awareness about what it feels like to be kind of lied to and dominated um, by a colonial power. Um, whether you have any kind of thoughts about, you know, that kind of layers of sovereignty and, and, and so on in relation to um, that Royal Commission. I guess it's, you might say that it's not your business, your um, First Nations person, but... Are you talking about Royal Commission into the nuclear tests or Royal yes, Commission of Black Deaths? Uh, Jim McClellan um, yeah, yeah. Commission. Yeah. That exposed to a lot of white Australians for the first time mm. that true contemporary nature of um, mm. being colonised. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the... A big pro you should actually read Daniel Browning's essay called Like a Fog, which was um, Lisa Radford and I commissioned for Art in Australia's um, Concrete Archives um, online journal. Like, it's available. We're, we're hoping we are printing a, um, a, a version of that for people to, to buy. But it, he talks a lot about um, that Royal Commission and, and people from... Um, uh, uncles from Indulkna as well being brought in to talk about what they experienced, but it was also their accounts were dismissed. So it's kind of like it's still that ongoing, you know, sense of, you know, we're still being lied to and we're still being like, well, there were no, there was no mob in the area. So it's kind of like, well, you know, there's still that, um, yeah, that, that, yeah. What is a Royal Commission for, really? You know, it's meant to be about truth telling and, taking things into legal accounts as well, but then it's still, you know, we need another one. And, um, and you know, you can see what's going on with the, you know, Aboriginal Deaths and Custody Royal Commission that was like so long ago, but there's still, things haven't changed much, so it's kind of like, you know, it's interesting. And the, compens the compensation, of course, came too late for many of the people who were directly affected, um, and indeed, many of the families and communities have still not been able to return to their country because it still sits within the um, pro prohibited area. And also, um, I'm not sure if you're aware that uh, John Howard uh, wrote a letter saying that uh, the nuclear tests had no ongoing effects. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I oh, know, he's an idiot. Yeah, he's all right, it's fine. But, um, but yeah, just shows how stupid he is. But anyway, but just keeps showing how dismissive, uh, you know, the, that government and the current government is, you know, like, and also um, when, um, uh, you know, when I was installing thunderating poison actually for the um, uh, third tri Indigenous Triennial in Canberra, Malcolm Turnbull at the time had said that he was gifting the gold veterans card to First Nations people who were affected by the nuclear tests, but a lot of them are dead now. And it's kind of, but also it's sort of like it's passed on to their children and their children's children. So it's like, where does that, where do those kids and those people come into, you know, it's sort of they're, they're sick, but they're not being respected the way they should, should be. And I think that's actually the, the, very much the, one of the ambitions of this work is really to, to honour and um, pay respect to those histories and those unknown, um, you know, the unknown um, people who were um, killed and into generations of, um, of trauma that are a result of those um, tests. And um, 
I'm just wondering whether we have any final questions um, for you, Arnie. Well, there's, two, there's two there, so um, as well, one, one at the front following, thanks. Hello. Hi. Um, so I was just wondering, there's a wealth of history and knowledge and stories and experiences in these landscapes, and I know that you've created this commission behind you, but is there anything more left of these stories that you're going to continue on with? Like, surely, you know, you're just... There's just so much going on that I'm wondering what you're working on next. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, there's lots. I think, oh, not not, not lots of work, but um, but there's a lot. Of, there's so many stories that I, you know, I feel always feel like I'm just scratching at the surface, and um, particularly in terms of the nuclear history and uh, of colonisation in um, uh, in South Australia. But I think, you know, there's always something. I think and. Like I um, am working towards uh, a new work for uh, an exhibition called Exposure, which is at the First Nations Art Gallery in Santa Fe in New Mexico, the second half of the year. Um, at, yeah, at the moment, um, it's, it's, for me, it's going back to research again and then the making component might come again later. So it's sort of after something like this, it's, for me, it's going back to not just the books, but just going back to South Australia again. So, um, and who knows? I think I always think that something, you know, the new work for me will be something that I get told to make. It's not the other way around, yeah. So. And, and on that research, um, Birmingham has also been a recent interest. You've been... Yeah, so I think, um, well, that's, yeah, that's another thing that's back on the cards once international borders open as returning to Birmingham in the UK where nuclear energy began really. So it's sort of uh, going back and um, looking at the two men, um, Pirlas and, um, oh, what's his name, I should have. Um, Pirlas and, uh, oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. I should, anyway. But it's these two men that had a working relationship or their boss was Mark Oliphant from the University of Adelaide who developed nuclear energy, which ended up developing into the nuclear bomb. So it's sort of drawing more attention to these men who thought nuclear energy was amazing. Yeah. So. yeah I think we had one question down here at the front. I hope this isn't like a weird question. Um, just like, because the work is about like trauma, but like a mass big trauma but also personal trauma like is there like do you get overwhelmed like making it is there like a, strategies that you need to use to kind of prevent that from happening or do you need to separate yourself to a degree for it to be like successful or to for you to even be able to complete the works um it varies i think like when i was working on the um works about children for um, Strontinum 90 and only a mother could love them, that was pretty difficult for me. And I um, yeah, had to step away for a, for a few weeks, I think. I couldn't even look at the work. Um, but uh, I think, uh, to be honest, I don't do enough self-care, really. But, um, but I think finding people uh, that I can work with and I can talk to openly about the stories is is amazing 
and um, like I have quite a large group of people I work with, so it's uh, it's nice to be able to talk about this, the history and the trauma and also how I feel about it. Um, and I used to have a friend that lived around the corner from me who no longer lives there, sadly now, but we used to hang out together in her backyard and have beers and talk through things and around the her fire and stuff. So, yeah, there's ways of dealing with it, but also I think finding confidence in your... In your in, um, that I find that in, within my social network is really important, yeah. And I think also you've, you've said before that, you know, that your work and your research takes you back to country and reconnects you with country, and so, in fact, that's always been restorative and regenerative and generative in your practice. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, I'm even now thinking about, I just want to go back to Woomera, and it's not the holiday destination, but it's sort of like it's, I love being in the desert or near water as well, so I need to near, be near the beach. Um, I often hide out in Adelaide um, and just to be near the, um, near family, but also near, like, just rolling waves or something like that. It's, yeah. Well, unless um, is, is, if there are no more questions, um, I would just like to say what an honour it has been for us to be able to present Ioani's work and how moving this exhibition is. And um, it's been a very rewarding experience um, for all of us here at ACCA. And I wanted to extend our extreme thanks to Ioani and also to the, to the collaborative work with um, uh, Lisa Wow as our collaborating curator and also Liz Knoll at the IMA where the exhibition will travel um, following ACCA. Um, so, but once again, would you please um, join me in thanking Ioani Scarce. And thank you also, all of you, for um, joining us today. And please do look out for the catalogue, which will be out next Wednesday. So, thank you.